One of the challenges of the English language is homonyms. Uh, When I say the word giant, you might imagine Godzilla or King Kong or the Hulk or Andre, best known as uh, Frezik. Um, You might think the New York Giants football team or the San Francisco Giants baseball team. Or if you live here in Peoria or the surrounding area, you might think of giant as the size of the breaded tenderloin at Donnelly's, which is really good if you've never had one. Trivia buffs may refer to Sultan Kozen, who was born in Turkey on the 10th of December in 1982, and who is, according to Guinness World Records, the world's tallest man at uh, eight foot three inches tall. Sultan is a giant, and as you can see, his hands are 11 inches and one quarter from wrist to fingertip. This is what uh, Sultan's hand would look like if he were standing in front of you today. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? I mean, that is humongous. Uh, His feet are 14 inches long. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the story uh, of two more giants whose life history is recorded in the Old Testament. Goliath was a Philistine warrior giant of a man, and his assassin was named David. He's an Israelite teenage giant of faith in the living God. As Melissa indicated, today we're continuing a sermon series that we've titled, Our God is Too Small. You see, our contention is that we often think of God as too weak, too distant, too uninterested, uh, too unable, too small, as it were, to do anything. Or we, we might be tempted to think that we are unworthy or too broken or too sinful or too inconsistent, or too whatever, to warrant God's love and provision. And consequently, we're convinced that one of the main things that we need to be reminded of regularly, at the start of every week when we gather together for the purposes of worship, is to actually be encouraged and reminded of just how big God is and what He promises to those of us who are His children. So over these six weeks in stories from some of the Old Testament saints, were being encouraged to see and experience God in bigger ways. Now, so far, we've looked at the story of Jacob, and we've seen that God is always good. Last week, in the story of Joseph, we saw that God is always present. And today, in the story of David and Goliath, uh, we'll see that God is able, able to dispense his love, and his power in just the right amounts at just the right times. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for a brand new day at the start of a brand new week. You're faithful, and we thank you. Thank you for your great love. We love you, Lord, and at the start of this week, we gather together with friends, brand new and some old, to celebrate your faithfulness and your love, your power and your mercy. We pray the prayer you taught us to pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on the earth, 
even as it is in heaven. And not just here, Lord, in this room, but right next door in Vineyard Kids where they're learning and growing and worshiping and serving and praying together too. Pray that uh, you'd fill their minds and lives with positive, powerful memories of connecting with you in church. And Lord, in this room, I just pray today that you'd put power on your word to our lives where every one of us needs it. We love you and ask for your kingdom to come in your name. Amen. There is perhaps no more renowned story in the Old Testament than that of David and Goliath. Anyone who's received early childhood religious training in any kind, (laughs) for those of you who are listening on the podcast, (laughs) there's a reaction to the slide, Adam's creation. As I was saying before I was rudely interrupted by the slide, (laughs) anyone who's received any early childhood religious education has heard this story. Every book of Old Testament heroes records this story. Every pastor worth her or his salt has preached a message or two on this story. The metaphors of the underdog versus the champ, the 25 to 1 dark horse versus the derby favorite, or, you know, the local retailer versus uh, Walmart being framed as a a David versus Goliath story, all find their genesis in this story. Few people in the Old Testament stand as tall or as colorful as King David. His life story is largely told in the books of First and Second Samuel. He lived and ruled about 1,000 B.C., and that's the millennial midpoint between the call of Abraham, the father of faith, a thousand years before, and the coming of Jesus about a thousand years later. David, who is interestingly the only person in the Bible with that name, was Israel's greatest king. He's designated by God as the forerunner of the Messiah to come, Jesus Christ. He's actually considered by many theologians to be a type or a sample of Christ. His rule was the high watermark of Israel's golden age. But interestingly, when we slow down and we look at the breadth of of the large sweep of David's uh, life story, we might actually begin to wonder why he was so blessed. He fell as often as he stood. He stumbled as often as he conquered. He stared down the giant Goliath, but he oogled at Bathsheba and then committed adultery and then had her husband murdered. He could lead armies, but couldn't manage his own family. He was hungry for God, but was bloodthirsty as a warrior. He ruled in the palace, but he hid in the wilderness. He had eight wives and one God. On his good days, no one was better On his bad days, no one was worse. It's interesting that the New Testament commentary, Acts chapter 13, verse 22, it's helpful. God said, quote, David was a man after my own heart. Today we might say, he's the kind of man I like. 
And that God saw David that way actually gives me great hope. Uh, honestly, his exploits become accessible to all of us. Frankly, straight A saints, uh, nearly perfect souls, uh, they're going to have little in common with David's life. But for the rest of us who more alternate between, you know, swan uh, dives and belly flops, whose lives are more like a roller coaster up one day and then down in deep doo-doo the next, we can identify with David. We, we our, our lives ring true with him. And I like how God loved his checkered heart, his up and down, all over the map life. That actually gives me great encouragement because I see that David was made out of the same stuff that you and I are made out of. And I can identify with that. David was the youngest of eight sons of Jesse, grew up in Bethlehem. And when Saul the king had been rejected by God, Samuel the prophet secretly anointed him as the successor. At that point, the Spirit of God came mightily upon David as a young teenager. But interestingly, he did not despise his daily occupation of tending for his father's sheep. You see, he didn't at that moment quit and start a book tour and launch a ministry and go on the radio as the new king, as so many people might be prone to do after an, an, an anointing, a powerful experience with God. No, he, he went out and cared for the sheep again the next day. And in that job, the Bible shows that he displayed a great deal of fidelity and courage. Uh, we, we understand in, in the text that he killed a lion and a bear when they tried to attack the sheep. So he was faithful in his job. He was also a skilled musician and a songwriter. At least 73 of the Psalms in the Bible were written and composed by David. And it was actually his fame as a musician that brought him to the attention of King Saul. When a tormenting spirit from God oppressed Saul with depression and fear, Saul found some relief from soothing Music And so David was recruited into the service of Saul's court to help him in his times of distression, uh, depression and fear. So he comforted Saul by playing the harp. And eventually, David became one of uh, Saul's armor bearers. And I believe that was in this season in the palace that he learned about government and war, strategy, leadership, decision-making, Life in the court of the king was his early training ground. But the Bible also says that David frequently returned home to Bethlehem, where he stayed engaged in caring for the father's flocks. Now, some years elapsed, and in this passage of time, evidently the young boy David had changed so much in physical appearance that Saul no longer recognized him. And any of us who are parents or guys who... Uh, are, are older than 13, no, we're no strangers to this phenomena where we experience puberty and, and guys grow about a foot, you know, in a month. Their voices change and they begin to shave. So it's understandable how Saul would have lost track of who David was. Well, during one of David's visits home, Israel's enemies, the Philistines, invaded Judah and camped about 15 miles west of Bethlehem in the Valley of Elah. It was a vast canyon about a mile wide, and on opposite sides of the valley was sloped terrain and situated on 
Each of the facing slopes were the Philistine and Israeli armies. The imposing giant Goliath first appears in the story in 1 Samuel 17. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you want to flip open there, you can follow the text. We'll be in 1 Samuel 17 the rest of the morning. Verse 4, Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The staff of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. So, friends, Goliath makes Sultan Kozin and Shaquille O'Neal look like they belong in Munchkinland. This guy is over nine feet, nine inches tall. He snarled like a contender in a heavyweight WWE match. We can imagine he probably had a size 20 collar, a 56-inch waist, biceps that burst out of his T-shirt, calves that rippled easily the winner in the World's Strongest Man competition. His boasts probably echoed through that flat canyon, and he offered a challenge to the Israeli soldiers. We read it in verses 8 and 9. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you coming out to fight? He called. I'm the Philistine champion, but you're only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me, and if he kills me, then we'll be your slaves, but if I kill him, you'll be our slaves. This taunt continued for 40 days. Day after day after day, Goliath breathed his threats He challenged the Israelites while flaunting his size, while flexing his muscles, displaying his impervious strength. Verse 11 reads that when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. The literal Hebrew reads that they were beaten down to defeat and were paralyzed with fear. You see, a battle with a giant can be an intimidating experience. Now, our Goliaths don't carry a sword or shield. They come in all sorts of other disguises, don't they? But they're all very large. Abandonment, physical or sexual abuse, fear, depression, loneliness, a personality in the workplace, a problem in the classroom, a a struggle in the home, bills you can't pay, pay or grades that you can't make, people you can't please, a habit you can't shake, a besetting sin that grips you, a past that haunts you, a future that looks bleak and hopeless, a a present that's excruciatingly painful, a very complex uh, set of overwhelming circumstances. Our giants taunt us with guilt and shame and bondage. They steal our joy. They rob us of peace and strength. They keep us up at night. They dominate our thoughts and lives. In in the same way Goliath did to the Israelites, our giants are very real, very intimidating, very paralyzing. What are your giants today? 
the Bible tells us that we have a very real enemy. The Apostle Peter says in his letter to the church, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Jesus said in the Gospel of John that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And the thief, the devil, uses temptation, circumstances, and people, and unjust systems and demons to wage war against God's people. This is spiritual warfare, and it's real. It's intimidating and can be actually very paralyzing. Battling a giant can be an intimidating experience. Now, David, the faithful shepherd boy, was sent by his father to carry food to the front lines, to his brothers there, and to do a check on their well-being. Upon his arrival at the Valley of Elah, David witnessed firsthand Goliath's challenge to the Israelites, mano a mano, man on man. Now, in the ancient Near East culture, a very common tactical strategy in war involved a one-on-one fight. Two soldiers would face off as representatives of their opposing brigades, and whoever won the struggle would achieve victory for his entire uh, camp. And so Goliath's challenge was such a strategy. Every other Israeli soldier was afraid. Goliath the giant was all they saw, all they heard. But David showed up, and his first discussion is about the Lord. In verse 26, he said, Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? His focus was on the living God. His brothers, silent about God. The other soldiers, silent about God. Saul the king, silent about God. Their God was too small. Everyone's eyes except David's were on the brutal, hate-breathing, intimidating, paralyzing giant. But David took one step onto the battlefield, and he saw what other people didn't. He saw the living God who ruled over pagan Philistines. He saw the living God who was alive and who was powerful and who was able to dispense love and power in just the right doses in just the right amount at just the right time. So what do we see? Do we see big giants that are brutal and hate-breathing and intimidating and paralyzing? Or do we see the living God who is big, who is the ruler of creation, who, who is able to administer his love and his power to his children, that is to bring the kingdom to bear at just the right times in just the right ways? What do we see? Regardless of what we see, though, a battle with a giant can be a lonely experience. You see, David was there all alone. His brothers criticized him, verse 28. What are you doing here anyway, they said. The king tried to dissuade him, verse 33. Don't be ridiculous, Saul said. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're just a boy, and he's been a man of war since your youth. 
And then in addition, David shed the conventional battle gear and he entered into that fight without the aid of Israel's most highly trained soldiers or their finest weaponry. He dispensed the armor of Saul. In that, in that way, David was literally all alone. And many times in our battles, even if we're a, a vital part of a church family, even if we are in a, a small group and feel the love and support of other brothers and sisters or friends or family who, who are surrounding us, in many ways, in our battles with our giants, we will feel all alone. That's the way spiritual warfare is. No earthly companion can fight your giants for you. At the end of the day, it's on the lonely battlefield that we learn to trust the living God, as David did. So David approached the battlefield, having armed himself with five smooth stones. Why did he pick five? Maybe the first four he doubted would work. Five smooth stones in his shepherd's bag. The, the text reads that he also carried uh, his sling and his staff. David's brothers probably turned and looked the other way out of fear or embarrassment. Saul the king probably sighed as he saw the young Hebrew racing to what he believed to be his certain death. The other soldiers probably stared in unbelief, like, can't believe this is happening. And on the other hand, Goliath roared in laughter and contempt. Look at verses 43 and 44. He sneered in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? He cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. Everyone else on the battlefield saw God as too small. David saw God as really big. He saw God's faithfulness in his past, having been faithful to deliver him from the lion and the bear, as God's pledge of ability to handle the new giant. He saw God's given ability, a sling and a stone, as the tools that are now in God's hands to be used to defeat his enemy. He saw God as able to defeat his Goliath, able to dispense his power at just the right time in just the way that he needed. David boldly declared then in verse 45, you come to me with sword Spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head, and then I'll give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and to the, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. David saw that the battle belonged to the Lord. 
His eyes weren't on the giant, the overwhelming circumstances. David's eyes were on the big God who was able. So verse 48 tells us that as Goliath moved closer to attack, David ran, quickly ran out to meet him. I have to imagine that maybe the giant was lumbering and all of that gear and David uh, in his probably his loincloth and shepherd's outfit was nimble and quick and ran out to meet him. But, you know, the thing is, he still had to go out. He had to take a risk, didn't he? I mean, he didn't have the end of chapter 17 to know how the story finished. And we kind of read it, oh, yeah, I'm David Kilgoliath. Well, he didn't know that yet, okay? He he had to go out onto the battlefield. And in, and in this sense, a, a battle with a giant can be a very risky experience. God was not going to kill Goliath in some cosmic intervention with a, a bolt of lightning or the earth quaking and creating a crack where the giant fell through. Now, there were plenty of times in other Old Testament scenarios where that is indeed what happened, but not here. In the largest number of cases, God is going to empower us with the gifts he's already given. Gifts with which we are already familiar, a sling and a stone, to step into the battle and defeat our giant. Our gifts, gifts with which we are already familiar, gifts like love and forgiveness and prayer and living in a vital community together, Uh, gifts like worship or ministry and prayer for others, or receiving prayer, or service, or giving, any other number of gifts with which we are already familiar and accustomed to use, God is going to empower those by his Spirit to defeat the enemy. But at any rate, remember, David didn't know the outcome of this story. So he took a risk and stepped into the battlefield with the giant. He was risking his life. And so, friends, I I think the lesson is that there's a risk in trusting God on the battlefield. It's not a it's not a slam dunk when we step out to trust God. There's a real element of risk involved when we are, are trusting God on the battlefield with our eyes on the living God, the big God. There's still a risk against all objective and and measurable uh, uh, logical means of of a battle, you know, when, when it looks like there's no possible way that we could be, we could be victorious. Uh, God uh, understands it's a risk. Everything in the, in the natural realm was screaming that David was foolish and illogical to step on the battlefield and trust the living God against overwhelming odds. It was a risk. A battle with a giant can be a risky experience. Well, of course, then the story continues in verses 49 and 51. Reaching into his shepherd's bag, taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. And then David ran over, pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath, and David used it to kill him 
and cut off his head. So David spotted the target. Uh, he seized the moment. I can imagine that at that time, the sound of his his uh, swirling sling was the only sound in the valley as everyone watched breathlessly. Uh, and the stone torpedoed and just sunk in the giant's forehead. Ugh. Imagine what kind of thud that made when it hit. Goliath's eyes crossed, his legs buckled, and he crumpled to a heap in the ground. And David seized the moment. He ran over to the giant, pulled his sword from its sheath. He shish-kebobbed the Philistine and cut off his head. Rather brutal, bloody story, actually. We could say that David knew how to get ahead of his giant. Uh, (laughs) Just a little comic relief from the gore of the Bible. You know, one thing I love about the Bible, though, is that it's so transparent. It doesn't Photoshop or sanitize anything. It just records it for all of posterity to read. It, it's actually a pretty brutal book when you are honest with it. And it raises a lot of questions. Like, like what, what about the legitimacy of God authoring David to be the assassin? I don't understand the sovereignty and complexity of those issues. But anyway, a battle with a giant can be a powerful experience an opportunity for God to be glorified through the actions of his children as he displays his love and his power in these moments where the kingdom breaks through. This story never gets old to me. It never gets time-worn. It's so encouraging, and, and in many ways it's faith building because it helps me see how big God is, how powerful God is, and it helps me trust him in my battle with my giants, hopefully in your battles with your giants. Now, notice, though, that God didn't eliminate the battle, did he? He didn't eliminate the giant. He could have, but he didn't. Real life in God's kingdom, involves real battles with real, intimidating, paralyzing giants. And God empowers us to bring them down in gifts with which we are already familiar. But in that battle, God assures that he is able. Did you notice what he said, what David said in verse 47? God is able to rescue us as his children. He assures us that our giants will not kill us. He guarantees us that no weapon that is formed against us will prosper, and that the tongues that rise against us in judgment, he will condemn, Isaiah fifty-four seventeen. God promises in Psalm 34 that the righteous person may face many troubles, but that the Lord will deliver him or her out of them all. That's God's promise. God is able. He's able to take whatever, wherever we are, with whatever we've got, a sling and a stone, but no sword. And he's able to defeat our giants as we trust him. And so today, let's just, let's continue to believe that the gods of 
the, the giants of abandonment and physical and sexual abuse or fear or depression or loneliness. We can say, you're coming down. We can say to the, the giants in our workplace or in our classroom or in our home, you're coming down. We can say to the giants of bills that we can't pay or grades that we can't make or, or uh, people that we cannot please or habits that are not yielding to, to self-control or addictions that cannot be broken. We're saying, you're coming down. You're coming down. You will not defeat me. We're going to say the giants in our past or in our hopeless future or in our complex, uh, com- complicated present, you're not going to keep me from fulfilling God's purposes for my life or for my family. You're coming down. The giant of overwhelming circumstances that you literally don't feel like you can face, that keep you up at night, that you don't know how you're going to face one more day, when maybe just this week you felt like it was one after the other after the other, like the giants have been unrelenting, and you almost just can't say, I can't take one more day. You're going to say to those giants, your power is broken. You are coming down. The, gi- the giants in your, ro- in your life that rob you of sleep, that rob you of sanity or strength or peace, that steal your joy, that dominate your thoughts from which you cannot escape, that cause you to feel in bondage and full of guilt and full of shame, they're coming down. Because God is able, God is able to bring his love and his mercy and his truth and his power into your life at just the right times in just the right way. God, I just thank you for this incredibly encouraging story, one that we've heard perhaps many times before. We thank you that it never gets old. It encourages us and it builds our faith and helps us see it once again how big you really are. When all odds are against it, Lord, you enable us to trust you. We thank you that you're able to rescue us as your children. Lord, the battles that that many in our church family are facing even today are formidable. The odds are against us. It's David versus Goliath. There's nothing in the natural that would say we should have victory, the giants that we face. But, Lord, today we we just join with you in declaring they are not going to defeat us. They are not going to keep your uh, us from fulfilling your purposes for our life. And I pray that even now, Lord, power on your word, power in our worship, that you would... Uh, release anointing to see your kingdom break in and that those intimidating and paralyzing giants would come tumbling down in your name. Now, Lord, we offer to you our our gifts in the offering and in worship. We say we, we give joyfully and cheerfully because it's your nature to give and we want to be more like you. Bless, Lord, those who give and, and cause prosperity and blessing to flow on those who desire to give but can't, in Jesus' name. Amen.